Episode 147 of the Bevan James Isle Show, an interview with Lance Dodes. Righto, team, welcome along to episode 148 of the Bevan James Oh Show. Um, it's holiday season here in New Zealand right now, so today's show is going to be a bit of a blast from the past. Uh, I, I do have a really great interview coming up in the next episode, which I've, I've recorded earlier today, actually. Um, but you won't get that for another couple of weeks from now. But over the holiday period, uh, just so I can get some time off, I kind of pre-record and do everything in, in ahead of time. And uh, I was pretty busy leading into the holiday break, so I thought what I'd do is just kind of bring up one of the great interviews from the past and um, do, I had an interview with a guy called Lance Dodes who is uh, a world's leading addiction specialist and it was a really great interview I did it a long time ago early on and the, the when, when the show was called Fitness Behaviour and so I kind of thought today that what I might do is just get Lance back on the show or, or just replay the interview because a lot of you guys wouldn't have listed, listened to it so uh, yeah, I think you'll get a lot from this. It's a really interesting interview, really interesting. Of someone like me who has addictive kind of traits as a person, but more importantly, it's kind of some of the stuff he talks about is it kind of works for everybody, really. So it was a great interview, and when I put it out at the time, I just got so much feedback from people saying, wow, this is a pretty powerful interview. So I'm going to be putting that on pretty much straight away. I'm not going to do much of a talk beforehand because... Is I'm literally this is the last thing I do before I go on holiday. So uh, before I put the interview on, I do want to give some love to some of the patrons of the show, and just so the patrons know, I won't be kind of taking putting the fee out for this one because it's kind of a blast from the past. But I do want to say a big thank you to the patrons, and if you want to become a patron of the Bevan James Isles Show, just go to my website bevanjamesisles.com, and every time I release the show, just whatever you choose to donate will be kind of go towards what I am doing, and it really does help me in you know, just kind of trying to promote the work that I want to do in this world. So I want to give some love to some of the patrons, and Brittany Mystic McEachin is one of them, Greg the Python Crowley, uh, we've got Luke Mayhem Miller, Pip the Silent Assassin Langford, uh, we've got Kate the Perfect One Sutherland, and we've got Robbie Big Shot Allen, and these are all people who contribute a little bit of money to the show. If you do become a patron, you do get a cool Bevan James Isles show nickname, so just saying, it's, it makes it well worth it. So again, go to bevanjamesisles.com. Anyway, I'm going to put some music on, and we're going to get straight into the interview with Lance. Here it is, right now. Right, our team, um, it's great pleasure today. I don't often get guests on the show, but I got a question a while ago from one of you guys around the idea of addiction and uh, food addiction. And it's not an area that I'm really strong in regards to my knowledge. And so I thought, well, I'll do some research. And I, I went and read quite a few books on the idea of addiction and, and uh, general addiction and how do you take that into food addiction. And there was one writer in particular that really seemed to hit a note for me. Uh, I, wrote, I read a book of his called Breaking Addictions. And it was, uh, I just thought it was a really, really great book. And I thought, well, if I can get to him and get him on the show it'd be much better to listen to him talk about this concept of addiction and, and you know, how do we think about this in regards to eating and exercise addictions as well. And his name was Lance Dodis. And uh, so I got in contact with him and, and we're very fortunate today to have him on the show. So welcome along, Lance. 
Thank you for having me. Yeah, it really is a privilege. So Lance, um, maybe before we even get into the addiction stuff, just want to give us a little bit of your history around your education and what drew you into, you know, going down this path within your field. Well, sure. I'm a physician and um, I am a psychiatrist. Um, And when I uh, finished my psychiatry training, I was uh, working as uh, running the... uh, 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 the psychiatry service at a general medical hospital, and we uh, decided to open an alcoholism treatment center. Uh, and at the time, I didn't know much about alcoholism or addiction in general. So uh, I uh, uh, got to talking to some people who helped me to open the, the unit and learn more about it, and then began reading more about it. And uh, at the same time, I was in a training to become a psychoanalyst. So the two things happened at the same time, and I became very interested in trying to understand addiction from its deeper psychological roots. And over the years, um, I ended up running the addiction treatment service at another uh, Harvard hospital called McLean Hospital. Uh, and um, uh, I began writing about what I had learned about the psychology of addiction and actually the, the very psychological nature of addiction. So currently, I'm a uh, assistant clinical professor at Harvard Medical School, and I'm what's called a training and supervising analyst at the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute here in the States. Um, so I've ended up marrying those two kinds of things together and uh, eventually wrote the two books, um, The Heart of Addiction and then uh, Breaking Addiction. Uh, which came out in 2011. So, so it was interesting when I read Breaking Addiction. Um, I think there's probably a lot of traditional thinking around addiction, and, and I, it was, I was surprised um, with some of the things that I learned from your book. And I think maybe a good place to start is when we think about addiction, what are some of the traditional thoughts that are around addiction that you've found aren't necessarily what people should be focusing on? Well, uh, one that I hope everyone knows by now is that addiction has nothing to do with being immoral, uh, or being crazy. Uh, but for thousands of years, people thought that if you were drinking, for example, out of control, then there must be something weak about you or bad about you, or you didn't have any sense of what was right or wrong, any of that stuff. None of that, of course, is true. Um, the other thing that's become very popular in recent years, and still many people believe, even though it's not true, is uh, about uh, 10, 10 years ago or so, um, a group of neurobiologists uh, looking into the uh, the uh, uh, the brain chemistry that might be involved in addiction came up with a conclusion which everyone now sort of half believes and which is completely wrong that addiction is due to a brain disease they called it a chronic brain disease and there's if if you want we can talk about that later but there's the idea is completely wrong it it does apply to rats so any of your listeners who are rats probably should listen to it but as far as human beings, it simply doesn't apply. So um, those are two of the main things. Uh, and then I guess related to that is if once you understand the psychology behind addiction, it makes it clear that folks with addictions are no different from anyone else and also should be treated no different from anyone else. In other words, they are pers- perfectly capable capable of coming to understand themselves and why they do things just like anyone else. Uh, so. You don't need to send them off to some special place to get special, you know, whatever that will be specific to addictions, but doesn't apply to the rest of the human uh, race. 
Now, one thing um, that my listeners were interested in was the idea of food addiction. And uh, I imagine you deal with lots of different types of addictions. Can you give us some examples of the different types of addictions you deal with? Well, most common, of course, are various uh, substance addictions, starting with alcoholism, but also every other conceivable drug. Um, but uh, for a few years, I also ran uh, the largest gambling, compulsive gambling clinic in my state, in Massachusetts, in, in the U.S. Um, so I had quite a bit of experience treating compulsive gamblers. Um, and it turns out that whether it's a drug addiction or whether it's a non-drug addiction, like gambling or eating, for that matter, yep. or internet watching, yep. they all share the same uh, psychology. They all share the same emotional basis, even though they all look different from each other. And one of the ways that we know that for sure is that people switch back and forth between them, which wouldn't be possible if there was some fundamental difference among them. Forty uh, percent of people with compulsive gambling, for example, are alcoholics. And it's very common to see folks go from um, uh, drinking to overeating to gambling and then even to something that we don't even call an addiction. It's another compulsive behavior, another driven behavior, but we don't call it an addiction, something like house cleaning. Yep. You can certainly be a compulsive house cleaner, but we don't usually call it an addiction, but it, from a psychological standpoint, it is. It, they're all the same. So so then you're saying that it's not necessarily the outcome as such, that, you know, so it's not necessarily that, you know, I'm doing drugs or I'm gambling, it's, it's more the emotional process that leads you to that behavior? Yes, that's exactly right. So then what, what, when we're thinking about that emotional process, what are the things you – because know, in your book you talk about the idea that there's a difference between addiction and just like a bad habit. So maybe before we start, how would you know the difference? Well, uh, the, the difference is that um, uh, habits are, from a psychological standpoint, very superficial. They're, they're not deep ingrained uh, behaviors that are driven by something important inside of you. They're just habits. And um, that's partly why habits, on the whole, are fairly easy to break, certainly easier than addictions, uh, because there's just no deep meaning to them. You get used to doing them. And, and of course, habits are, are actually necessary for a living, because if you didn't have the habit of tying your shoes absentmindedly, you have to think about it every time. And if you didn't have habits of doing things that, to get you through the day, You'd, you'd spend all of your time thinking about what you had to do next. So habits are, are a very different kind of animal. Addictions are deeply driven. They have important meanings to people, and that's why they're so hard to, to break. So, so they're quite different. Can you give an example? I suppose someone listening right now, because food is such an interesting area right now in society because it's so um, – a lot of processed foods are now getting driven. We had an interview with another um, top food person a few months ago, and they were talking about how they're you know, designing food to almost make them addictive to us. And uh, you know, it's a very interesting time around you know, the making of food, and people are creating these habits. I suppose how would I know that I'm not somebody who's just got a habit or I have an addiction? Well, uh, the, 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 the real way to do it, if, you're, if you end up being unsure, the only way to do it really and ultimately is to talk to somebody and figure it out psychologically because they really, once you start to get into the roots of it, they look completely different. But on the surface, um, 
one of the basic ways you can tell is habits tend to be things that you do in a certain circumstance or a certain time of the day. Okay. You know, every time you get up in the morning, you have a cup of coffee. That's not an addiction. Um, but addictions are triggered by emotionally important things, not just, you know, being in a store or being at a place or a time. Something upsets you and then you have to go eat. Okay. That's that's the kind of thing that happens in addiction because it's 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 precipitated by an emotion something that is emotionally important and, and usually upsetting to you. So so when it's um, a habit, it's it's twelve o'clock. I always have a bit of chocolate. When it's an addiction, something bad's happened in my life. I go to chocolate. Yes, and they and they they you know they can also the experience of them is somewhat different. I mean, habits, you, you may be annoyed if someone stands in your way because you, you want to get to the coffee in the morning or the chocolate, yep. but you're not going to be that upset. But, it, you know, obviously with people who need to do something from a psychological standpoint, they get very upset if you try to block them. And, and you can see that for yourself. If, if you try to block yourself, you'll pretty soon, you know, ignore your own good advice. Mm. So, so then for the people out there listening right now, when they start to identify, like some people will be listening to this and they'll go, oh, I know that for me it's around, you know, I, I, it's when I'm emotional, I instantly look to this certain behavior. And, and obviously we're talking a bit more about food today, but it might be alcohol, it might be drugs or, or certain things. What are some steps that they can look to work towards to actually learning to have to, to move forward from this or, or to progress forward? Well, uh, the best way I think to explain that would be to describe what I think the psychology of addiction is, and this applies as much to food addiction as to any other. Great. So, so uh, the example I usually give is somebody with alcoholism, but it really I can I can pretend the example is about food, and it really doesn't change anything. Yep. Um, so, but let me tell you the actual story, which was about alcohol, but I think your listeners will identify with it. Um, I was. This was also the first story in my in my first book, The Heart of Addiction. I was seeing a man who, in treatment, who uh, had alcoholism, and at the time of this vignette, uh, he had been sober for six months. So you could translate that in terms of eating to he had not had an eating binge or he had not eaten things he, he shouldn't eat uh, for six months. Yep. In any event, so now six months had gone by and he was doing quite well. And one day he came in and he said, uh, well, doc, I, I blew it. I, I drank. So I said, what happened? And he told me this story. He said that he and his wife had gone downtown into the city and they were going to do different things, but they were going to meet at a certain spot at a certain time. So he dropped her off and then he parked the car. And then later he did his shopping. And when the appointed time came, he showed up, but she didn't. And he waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and she didn't show up. Mm. Now, she uh, was often late, so he wasn't worried. But his problem was, this was in the days before cell phones, he had no way of contacting her, and he couldn't just go sit in the car because he had dropped her off before he parked, so she didn't know where the car was. He was absolutely trapped on the spot there. He yeah. was completely helpless. And then he said he spotted a bar across the street or down uh, and down a block, and I suppose we could translate it into he spotted the restaurant or the bakery yeah. or the food store. And... He decided he would go in and get a drink, which he did. So that was the story. So I said to him, well, look, did it help? And he said, yes. And I uh, said, tell me, when did you start to feel better? 
And at first he said, well, you know, I was drinking. But then he stopped himself and he said, I actually started to feel better when I ordered the drink. And I said, huh. And then he thought for another minute and he said, I actually started to feel better when I walked in the bar. And I said, huh. And, and then he thought. And finally, he said, if you want to know the very first time I started to feel better, it was when I was standing on that street corner and I decided to go get a drink. Mm. So I've heard this is just a, a vignette, but I've heard this from so many people now. And it doesn't depend on which kind of addictive behavior it is. It certainly could be eating. It could be shopping. It could be drinking. But the key moment in addiction is the moment when people decide to do it, not when they're doing it, and certainly not after they've done it, when they're all the bad effects. Mm. So that clued me into uh, looking at that moment. And what we discovered, I mean, it raised the question, you know, of course, he anticipated he would get a drink. But why did he feel so much better? Why was the problem solved just by deciding? Well, after we talked about it a little bit, we realized that he actually had solved his problem by deciding, because what his problem was, was that he was helpless. He, uh, there was nothing he could do. He couldn't move. He couldn't leave. He couldn't call her. But as soon as he decided to have a drink, now he could and would do something that he believed would help him. So he didn't feel helpless. He was out of the trap. So and that, okay, Sorry, you keep going. Well, I'm just going to say, and that carry through and the rest when he walked down there and had the drink, but he was already better before he even had any alcohol in his body. And, uh, so that told me what ended up being the first part of my ideas about addiction. There were three parts to it, but the first part is addiction in general serves the psychological function. And what it does is it gets you out of that helplessness trap by making the decision. The job of addiction is to reverse helplessness. Now, I have to say a few things about this. First of all, everybody is different. So you can't just walk up to somebody and say that and say, now I understand you. The point is, everybody's helplessness that is overwhelming for them is different from the next person. And this turns out, if to, just to jump ahead, this turns out to be very important in treatment. Because once you learn what emotionally is overwhelmingly help makes you feel overwhelmingly helpless, you will also have discovered the thing that is the most troubling for you in your life emotionally. They're always the same for a good reason, because you're only one person. So it's always that thing or that set of things that, that is the most troubling that you can't stand that leads to the addiction and also leads to the rest of the problems in your life. So that was the first part. Well, go ahead. Oh, can you just give maybe an example of, of the helplessness? Maybe you're, of, you know, I hear what you're saying. You're kind of saying that really there's a key moment where we feel helpless and it's almost like making it addictive choice that makes us feel a sense of control which leads to or, or some kind of emotional overcoming that helplessness which then leads to us doing the addictive behavior which then obviously the negative flow on effect of that can you maybe give us an example of you know when people have felt helpless and you know what that feels like or how would you know you're there well uh I, yeah i agree with everything you said except i would reverse one piece i, I think the addiction it turns out, and actually I'm coming to this, but the addiction is it is the uh, solution to the problem. I oh, mean, okay. The, the, you know, you are, I mean, the example I just gave, I, I mean, there are many more in the book, of course, but the example I just gave, gave, he he felt helpless. He Now, you might wonder, by the way, 
why was this so overwhelming for him? What's the big deal having mm. to wait for your life? Well, and this is why I was saying every person is different. So once I got to know him and, and he got to know himself, we, we learned why that was so overwhelming. It turns out that when he was a child, he had been one of these latchkey children. He had come home after school from a very young age, let himself into his house. There was no one in the house at the time. And he spent a, quite a long time, especially for a small child, waiting for his parents to come home. And he was frightened and he was lonely. Now, it wasn't just that one thing. That was just an example of it. But there was a lot of that kind of thing in his childhood. And it turned out that having to wait for somebody had a deep meaning for him. Mm-hmm. And it, it was overwhelming for him. He felt utterly helpless. He had to do something. So that's what he did. And and so that's when, so those moments... You know, obviously, by discovering those moments, then he would be able to make different choices or put different plans in place. Ultimately, yes. And and uh, so, so let me just continue because you're yep, right. Yep, sorry. Yep, so, yep. so, so that was the first point. Now, the second point was this: to return to the man on the corner, I said to him, "Okay, look, you know, uh, you've been trying hard to not drink, and you've been doing a pretty good job of it for all these months. So, let me ask you a question." At that key moment, when you decided to go get a drink, was there a conflict inside of you? Did you go back and forth? Did you say, well, gosh, you know, I really feel like getting a drink, but I'm trying to stop. Was there a a fight going on inside of you? And he looked me right in the eye, and I won't say his exact words because I don't know the audience for this show. (laughs) Basically said uh, a stronger version of, damn it, I'm going to go to get a drink. So... Almost all people, when you ask them about that moment, they say that or they say a synonym for damn it, usually stronger. Yep. So I got interested in that. What did that mean? What was he was expressing a very strong feeling. In fact, this feeling was so strong, it didn't matter that he had spent six months trying to deal with his drinking. Nothing else mattered. By God, he was going to do it. So this was a kind of anger, really a kind of rage. So. Because rage has that kind of characteristic, you know, once you're in the throes of a rage, nothing else matters. You throw things around and later you'll regret it. But but that's takes takes over your 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 mind at that point. Mm. So if he was enraged, then the next question I wondered about is what was he so angry about? And that one was easier to figure out because we already knew that he was feeling helpless. And it turns out that one of the things that is true of all people and it's quite normal, is that when you are overwhelmingly helpless, rage is actually a normal response. Let me give you an example. If you were exploring in a cave, and all of a sudden 200 tons of rock fell between you and the opening, now you're in a dark cave, and you're utterly trapped. Well, you might try to stay calm, but it won't last long. Pretty soon you'll be yelling and screaming, you'll be pounding at the rocks, you might even break your wrist trying to break through the rocks. That kind of intense, really almost physical reaction, you know, you're going to do whatever you have to do, the way animals, you know, can sometimes bite off their arm to get out of a trap. Mm-hmm. You'll do whatever you have to do to get out of this trap. Well, that's a normal reaction. If you instead got caved in and you sat down and twiddled your thumbs and waited to die, that would be abnormal. Mm-hmm. So the rage that occurs when you're overwhelmingly helpless is not the problem. But the problem is that when you uh, 
is that certain is that circumstances make you overwhelmingly helpless that wouldn't make someone else feel overwhelmingly helpless. This man wasn't actually in a cave and he was just waiting, but it felt like that. Mm-hmm. So the rage, it turns out, was rage at helplessness. And uh, the feelings of rage, the feelings that you're going to do something no matter what, even if it's disastrous consequences, that's what gives to addiction its so-called addictive properties. That's what addiction looks like and feels like. It feels like a rage. I'm going to do it. I don't care. It doesn't make any difference who gets hurt. Even people I love can get hurt. At that moment, I'm going to do it. And later, of course, I regret it, both for myself and others. So it's important. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. You keep going. So if that is so, then I think it helps to explain why addiction looks the way it does. It also incidentally helps to explain why things like education don't really help that much with addiction because you can be as educated as you want to be. You can know everything you want to know about what it's like to be in a cave-in, but you're still going to be enraged. And uh, that isn't a good treatment for for addiction for that reason. And reasoning with people isn't a good treatment either. Yeah, so it's almost like you're saying once you experience hopelessness, the rage makes you lose all rationality anyway. So even if you, you know, for six months beforehand, you're on this good diet or, or you're staying away from alcohol, once you hit that moment, that decision process dies and you instantly have this 100% focus to, to do the rage behavior. That, that's right. That's right. That's exactly right. So, uh, so now I felt I had two pieces of the puzzle out of the three. That I, I knew what addiction uh, what the function of it was to reverse helplessness. I knew what drove addiction and to give it its form. That was the rage at helplessness. But there was still another question in my mind. You could have all that, but why did he have to go get a drink? Or let's say, why did he have to go eat? Well, in order to figure that one out, we have to go back a step. Remember I said he was helpless because he couldn't contact his wife. But was he really helpless? And the answer is no. He actually could have done something. He could have left. He could have just walked home or gotten in his car. Now, that would have abandoned his wife, and that would have been a problem in itself. But he could have done it. Now, he didn't do it precisely because he cared about his wife. He didn't want to abandon her. But he had a direct way out. And I'm not saying he should have. But I will say this. If he did do that, if he had taken a more direct way of expressing his need to get out of his helplessness, I don't think he would have had a drink. Mm. He had to, no need. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have even had to get really enraged because he would have said, I'm not waiting anymore. I'm out of here. And then the problem was solved. And what that tells me is that instead of doing a direct act, since he had to do something, he did the, another act. In his case, it was drinking. For another person, it would be eating. So my final piece of how I understand addiction is All addictions are what I call displacements, or you could use the word substitutes, for a more direct action. If he had taken a more direct action, he wouldn't have had to do the addictive behavior. But instead, he did a substitute behavior, which for him, typically, was drinking. For another person, again, it would be something else. So the idea that addictions are really just displacements or substitutes helps to explain something else we know about addictions, which is people switch addictions all the time. Yep. You know, they, they, as what I said before. So it, how, how is it that you can go from being a, uh, a food addict to being a gambling addict 
to being somebody who can't stop cleaning his house. How do you explain that? Mm. They seem different things. But if you think of them as just substitutions, that's all they are. And people can relatively easily shift their substitute behavior, their displacement from one thing to another. So, so, so you, are you kind of saying that basically, okay, you have your dissatisfaction, you have your rage, and it's almost like you forget that you have other choices at that moment. And ideally, if you can figure out you're in a rage or you're in that, you know, the helpless moment, that if you can start to learn that you do have other options, that will move you away from the addiction. Well, that that's right. So in order to uh, help people to do this, um, and this is, you know, as you know, this is a, a big part of the book Breaking Addiction, yeah. um, people can find other solutions. But the key is you can't prescribe a solution for somebody else. It, it doesn't work to say to someone with a food addiction, when you feel like eating, go take a walk. That That's completely useless. Mm. The reason mm. it's useless is because it doesn't really address the problem. Unless somebody really said, I no longer feel overwhelmingly helpless when I take a walk, but that's rarely the case. Yeah. So let me give you an example of, of another way of finding a substitute solution. This is also in, in one of the two books. This is a woman who had a Percodan addiction. So she would, you know, I don't know if the, what, is that the same drug in, in uh, New Zealand? Uh, it's, uh, oxycodone or? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yep. Uh, okay, so anyway, um, so she got these pills from a doctor who really didn't mind giving out lots of pills to people without paying any attention to what they were doing with them. And so she kept on using this. Now, she was a, a woman who had a kind of domineering husband. And she tended to be pretty submissive. So what would happen is, uh, one typical thing is he would call up in the middle of the day, he was a businessman, he would call up and he would say, I'm bringing business people home for dinner, prepare a company dinner, you know, prepare a, a, a guest dinner. And she hated these, by the way, and she hated to especially hear about it at the last minute. But she would say, yes, dear. And then she would get off the phone and then she would go to the medicine cabinet and take a couple of Percodans and then she'd go and get the dinner. So this is a pretty clear example of what I was describing. She was helpless mostly because she made herself so meek. Yep. But once she was in that trap, she had to do something. And her something for her was taking Percodans. Yep. And then once she took them, she was no longer helpless and she went about doing the thing. So it's almost well, like that was her rage moment and her response is to take the drug. That's right. Yep. Her, her, she solved the rage. She didn't have to be – right. She expressed the rage really would be another way to say it yep. by taking the drug. Although consciously she was barely aware that she was angry. All she knew was that she had to get a drug. Oh, okay. So, so that's the thing that they don't, when you're addictive, you don't even know, you're not consciously going, oh, I'm addictive now. I need to go for the drug. It's just, I have this emotional response. I need something. Right. Oh, yep. Right. It, or yep. you're, you're mostly not, I mean, it's common to not be in touch with the rage consciously, although yep. it's very close to the surface. Yep. And the way you can, I mean, so mostly people say, I'm upset. I just, I, I just got to go eat. Yeah. And they don't, they don't notice the piece in the middle. Yeah. yeah. But if, you want, if you want to see it, all you have to do is say, no, 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 you can't have that donut. And then you'll see the rage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, okay. So, so this woman, she went to the medicine cabinet and uh, that was her usual thing. Well, one day she came in and she said to me, well, it happened again. And I said, what? She, and she told me the story. She said, well, he, my husband, he called again in the middle of the day, same thing, make dinner. And she said, I know what I should have done. I, I should have said to him, make your own damn dinner. She said, but I really, I couldn't do that 
So again, I said, yes, dear. I hung up the phone and I walked over to the medicine cabinet just the way I always do. And I opened the medicine cabinet. I'm staring at the vial of pills. She said, but I found a way out. And I said, what? And she said, well, I, I was wishing I had told him to make his own damn dinner, but I realized there was something in the middle I could do. That would have been the best, but there was something I could still do. I said, what? She said, I decided to order in Chinese food. Oh. And the interesting thing is that she said, as soon as I realized I could order in Chinese food, my addictive urge vanished. Mm. So this seemed like a miracle to her, but actually it made perfect sense because she had found another substitute behavior. It wasn't that she said the best. She should have just stood up to him. But she found something else that got her out of the helplessness trap. And so she didn't need the pills. She had found something else and something that was better, really, mm-hmm. better solution. So one of the messages from this, and that I talk about in the book, is you don't have to find the perfect solution. And you just don't have to have all the issues of your life worked out to solve an addiction, although that would be nice. But even though she hadn't quite worked it out, you can find something that deals specifically with what your problem is, what's making you helpless. And if you do that thing or any of those things, you can avoid doing the addictive act because you will have solved it another way. So, so, so I suppose the question I have, Lance, you know, because a lot of what's really interesting is I, I imagine a lot of people who are addictive in nature will know that they have these areas. And, and obviously food is our area today, but is they think that they just lack willpower in the moment. They, they think they what? Lack willpower in the moment. Oh, would, that, right. would that be fair to say? Uh, well, no. I think the problem with that is that that's how people ended up calling folks with addictions weak. They said yeah. they don't have willpower. No, that's that's completely untrue. It's that any – it's to go back to the cave analogy, you can have as much willpower as you want, but you're still going to be pounding on those rocks and breaking your wrist. And, and on top of that – excuse me, let me turn off this yep, phone. Yeah, that's okay. Um, on top of that – um, sometimes people with addictions are told they're self-destructive, mm. but that's wrong too. Cause of course the results are destructive, but what would you say to somebody who broke his wrist trying to get out of a cave in? Would yeah. you say you're self-destructive? Of course not. And that's the way it works. When in the throes of that kind of experience, everything else is out the window. You're not inherently self-destructive. You're not masochistic. You're not lacking in willpower. It's just that those things are overwhelmed at that point. Mm. I, I suppose I'm interested in because um, I, I imagine a lot of people, although I hear what you're saying, I, I imagine a lot of people own that they lack willpower or they're self-destructive. You know, emotionally, they think they are those things because they haven't seen your method or you know these different ways of looking at it. Well, that's right. And that's really too bad. I mean, uh, people with addictions tend to feel bad about themselves and uh, there's it, it no reason to feel any more bad about yourself if you have an addiction than if you have, for example, another compulsive behavior. I mean, they're all the same. So if instead of eating a lot or drinking a lot, if, if when you were feeling overwhelmed, you, uh, you, know, you, you doodled and you had a doodling compulsion, how bad would you have to feel? I mean, mm-hmm. you'd use up some paper, but that would be about it, you know? And addictions just have gotten a very bad name because, and people think badly of themselves, but it's just because they don't understand it. Mm. So, so, so I suppose, obviously, getting help is, is a big part of the process of trying to overcome addictions. But what are some things, some tips that you can give for the people who are listening out there right now 
and how to learn, you know, those those crucial moments along the way, you know, that that helplessness, that rage, and 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 it, it does it come down to having actually having pre-planned methods for different alternatives that give you a sense of um, choice in those hard moments. Well, I think what what I often suggest to my patients is, since you want to, since the key to point is never when you're you're actually doing the addictive act, and I, I'm stressing that because almost always. If people have, let's say it's a food addiction, they talk a lot about what they eat. And then they talk about how the, the effects on them and their, and their weight and all the terrible problems. And, you know, I understand that. But it's not at all useful for dealing with the problem. You really want to look backwards in time. Okay. So what you want to do is let's stay with eating. The chances are that even if you have an eating compulsion or an eating addiction, same thing, um, that you don't feel like eating a lot all the time, that there are times when you feel it more and times when you feel it less. So if that's the case, what I suggest to my patients is notice when you feel like, let's say it's eating, notice when you feel like eating, and then look backwards. What just happened? What happened in your life? What happened in your thoughts? What happened in your feelings? What was it that led, that happened just before you had the thought of eating? Mm. And if you do that enough, after a while, you'll notice a pattern. Maybe not the first time, because every circumstance will be a little different. But pretty soon, you'll see the theme. And uh, there's lots of examples in, in my book in which you can see the theme, and it's different for every person. But for example, um, the, uh, the woman who figured out that she could order Chinese food, she was a very meek person. She was too meek. She was too submissive. There were roots of that in her past. But even before she worked that out, she could see that she was constantly being in situations and truthfully putting herself in situations where she would have to be submissive. So she learned that that was the sort of thing that put her at risk of doing her addictive behavior. So having learned it, she could now uh, see it coming. And even if she didn't see it coming, she would she could stop for a moment and think, do the process she had already trained herself to do, what just happened, she could figure it out. And like with the Chinese food, it only took a moment. Once she realized why she was taking the pills at that moment, she could say, oh, of course, I just agreed to make a dinner that I would I hate to do. Well, how can I solve that problem? How do I do I have to be helpless? Well, no, I don't have to be helpless. I'll have it brought in. Mm. So there's always a solution. And it turns out that once you realize what the issue is, that always leads to the addictive urge. It, it, it's relatively easy to come up with practical solutions. And the, the reason, by the way, it's so easy is because the addiction itself is, is the complicated part. It's a substitution. If you mm. just did the obvious direct thing, you wouldn't need the addiction. Mm. The man on the street corner, for example, I mean, he had reasons for not leaving, but he could have left. If he had left, no alcoholism at that, that day. So... I give a lot of examples in, in the book. Of course, some of the situations are a little tougher to deal with than others. Um, I mean, not it's not you can't just leave every situation and you can't order Chinese food for every situation. But every situation does have a way of thinking about it. And that's why I have all the examples uh, that I put in. Um, and once you you know yourself well enough, you can anticipate when you will have an addictive urge hours, days, even months in advance. I have a patient that I'm seeing now who does something that um, is the sort of thing that she she knows every time she does it, she drinks, and it's two months away. Well, 
we can already start working on it. You know, we can start thinking about what are the alternatives for her so she's not overwhelmed at the time and also so she can change what she actually does, change the situation before she so that she's not she doesn't get uh, overwhelmed. Does, does it, um, you know, like, so you're saying that really the best thing, well, one of the things we really to focus on early on is, is to learn some awareness around that moment where you feel helplessness and what creates that. So then you can try to figure out other ways to approach that. How long does it often take for people to kind of gain that skill? Is that something that just varies on the person or, or do you find that, I've, you know, it, it, it's quite common with most people? Um, I think it varies a lot. Uh, it doesn't. It isn't so much the the skill part that's hard because it's not that hard to notice the theme. People usually can notice it pretty well, and if they can't, you know, you can always get in talk to a good therapist, and usually the theme becomes pretty pretty clear pretty quickly. Mm. It is harder for some people than for others to uh, to do something about it, but that doesn't depend. That isn't really a, about the addiction. That's about the person. And uh, for example, some people the issue is so deep and hard to deal with that what they really need is to have a good psychotherapy to work that out before they can get better control. Yeah. In, in, in my experience, almost everybody gets better relatively quickly to work it out entirely. Usually that goes hand in hand with figuring out, you know, what makes you tick inside. Mm-hmm. With, with regards to, um, um, so, so, Oh, you're, you're, you're such a good answer. I'm kind of falling off my wagon. So, so then, figuring that out, any other tips that you would give? Oh, well, I think that's probably uh, the main one. I guess I would also want to say something about uh, two things, I guess. One is, since addictions can shift to other compulsive behaviors, which we don't call addictions, I would, I would also notice if any of those occur. Um, I think I, I, I sort of alluded to this. I, a woman I was seeing who had a, a completely different addiction, which she stopped, one day came in to see me and she said, well, I don't do that anymore. She said, but I'm going crazy. And I said, why do you say that? And she said, because I'm cleaning my house with a Q-tip. That was a woman I was thinking of when I mentioned <laughs> yeah. it before. So, well, it sounds crazy to cute, you know, clean your house so thoroughly. But we both recognized almost immediately that this was just another displacement, another substitute. Now, it was a healthier one than her previous addiction, but it was still the same thing, and we could still use it to understand what was going on, and she could understand it. You know, one of the problems in 2013 and for the last two decades is uh, people in uh, my field, unfortunately, tend to give everyone 12 diagnoses. You know, so, you know, you have depression, you have anxiety, you have an eating disorder, you have... uh, you know, uh, three other, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's insane. It's it's all because of the way psychiatrists tend to divide everything up into symptoms and call everyone a, a diagnosis. But that's that's just silly. You're only one person. So what really is happening is that there's something that bothers you, and it creates symptoms. It'll make you depressed. It'll make you anxious. It'll make you have an addiction. It might make you have a phobia. But the issue is the same. You're only one person. So. Uh, that can be helpful so that people don't get overwhelmed saying, you know, I'm, I, <laughs> look how sick I am. He's giving me four different diagnoses and a pill for each. So, yeah. Lots, lots I'm interested, you know, like I, I live in a world with, of exercise, you know, that's kind of my, my passion and the thing I do. And, and it's really interesting in the exercise world because we get people who are very addicted to exercise in a way that's unhealthy, you know, like, um, and, and I know in my past I've been that person, I've been someone who's done, you know, 40 hours exercise a week for, for years and um, uh-huh. 
and and I know there was a little bit of that was about chasing my inner demons and and I'm in a place now where I you know I don't need exercise I'm quite I love it and I love it in my life but it's not a need so much but it's right. it's it's funny in our world because no one really frowns upon the, the addictive behavior if anything it's encouraged if anything you're you're right you know <laughs> you, you know like if anything you're you're kind of put on a platform because you're so strong at this area of life that everyone else is so weak at but right. I, I do see people in my industry and, and even people who are clients who um, are actually really unhealthy with their exercise, and but because it's in, in, in the area of exercise, it's not you know, like if it was drugs, you'd bring it up. But because it's exercise, it's almost left un- alone. What would be your thoughts on that? Well, I I, I agree with that, and um, I'm glad that no one uh, looks down on you because you exercise a lot. But uh, they should have exactly the same attitude toward people who drink a lot or take drugs a lot. Because uh, it's it's all the same. No, I think that's right, and I also think that the way you said it is exactly right. If you do it because if you really are doing it as a, as a pleasurable choice, or because you think it's a good idea, that's fine. If you do it because you need to do it, then then it's a symptom, and it needs to be looked into why you have to do it that way. Mm. And of course, to confuse matters, sometimes things are both, like exercise. I mean, it's a good idea to exercise, but if you're also doing it as a symptom, then what will happen is when you finally work it out, hopefully, um, is you'll return to doing what you did. You'll exercise only to the extent that it actually makes sense, not because you're solving an inner problem. Mm, mm. It's just really common in my industry. What's really interesting is you'll see people, like they'll, they'll, when they're injured, they can't stop or they can never have a rest day or, you know, they just emotionally can't let that happen because it's all those symptoms you talk about are obviously happening. Right, right. Mm. And if they, if they stopped if, if, if something prevented them from exercising, then they might become anxious or, or upset, um, which, uh, you know, no, no one wants, but it might help them to see what it is that's really bothering them and driving this behavior. Yeah. Well, the other funny thing about our industry as well is you get a lot of esteem from praise from others. So, you know, you're almost encouraged to go more towards that behavior. Right, you right. know, like you know, suddenly you, people put you on a pedestal because they think you, you know, you get called this. You know, you can exercise for most people is such a hard thing to do in life. So then, right. if you become good at that thing, everyone goes, "Oh my god, you're amazing!" and and it pushes people more towards the addictive behavior without actually dealing with their problems. Well, uh, you know, I think that's true, but but I would still say that the the main impetus is inside, because mm. if you don't have the inside piece, the 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 psychology to do it, then you know, we all get praised for exercising, but not all of us use that praise to, uh, that, that doesn't push us over the edge to exercising compulsively. Mm, mm. Um, any, just anything else you'd like to add, Lance? Like, you know, I really appreciate any time you've got, but just anything else you'd like to add? Um, well, I think we covered a lot of it. Um, uh, I, uh, I guess I would encourage people if they, you know, if in thinking this through, they decide they want to see somebody, and I'm going to say something very strange, and some people will be mad at me for this, but I would say, I don't know how it is in New Zealand, but here in the United States, if, I would discourage people from going to someone called an addiction specialist. Oh, really? The reason for that is not that these are bad or evil people, but they mostly take on take the traditional view that addiction is sort of a separate kind of phenomenon which you have to treat by going to an addiction person who usually is not well-trained in psychology, but is mostly going to either uh, encourage you or 
uh, give you kind of uh, a life coaching experience, or maybe they'll try to treat you with some, um, you know, they'll try to have some sort of biological approach to it to give you a pill or something. And most of the people in, in this field, at least in, in the U.S., um, are kind of anti-psychological in that way. They, or they believe in this chronic brain disease nonsense, which doesn't lead, lead to any treatment at all, incidentally, because it's chronic and you can't do anything about it. Mm. Fortunately, it's not true. But, you know, what I would do instead of that, and what I'm always, people are always calling me to say, who should I go see? I, I would find the best therapist you can find, the person who is the most steeped in understanding human psychology. Forget about the addiction piece, because you can learn the addiction piece. I mean, what I just told you about, not only is it in two books, but I've written a number of academic papers. People can read them. Um, it's not tough to understand this, but to go in the other direction is very hard. If you are just sort of a, you know, a recovering addict or something like that, and you have no training in psychology, you can't become a psychologist by reading a couple of papers, but you can learn about the psychology of addiction once you already are a psychologist. Mm. So I would just go for the best person you can get, somebody who's you know, going to try to understand what we call psychodynamically, try to understand what makes you tick inside. It's, do you have much of a battle with philosophies? You know, obviously there are different philosophies out there. You know, like, is that much of a battle in between, you know, this world that you live in? Uh, there's quite a bit of battling. Um, and some of it is unnecessary. Uh, I, I, I don't like the chronic brain disease people because it's, it's actually destructive. I mean, it, it, it points people in the wrong direction and it has, it's not helpful at all. And it's just wrongheaded. But the people, for example, who are 12 step folks of which there are a very large number, um, there's no real reason to battle 12 step programs have extremely limited success statistically, but that doesn't mean they're they're worthless. They're, they're very good for the people for whom they're very good, but it's a very small percentage of the population. Mm. And, uh, mm. um, what, uh, uh, what I've always suggested to people is that if they are getting something out of a 12-step program, by all means, stay in it because you're one of that group. Uh, but the bad side of the 12-step programs is that if you're told that that's the only way or if you don't do this, then you'll never get well, well, that's just wrong and, and hurtful. Mm. And unfortunately, there are people who say that, you know, it's our way or the, or the highway. Or if, you, if, you, if, you, if you don't like going to AA, then there's something wrong with you. It's your problem, not ours. Mm. Uh, it's just destructive. Mm. What kind of success rate do you have, Lance? Like- well, it's, you know, sometimes people ask me that. I'm in private practice. And so I have a biased population. So I have a very high success rate. But to be perfectly fair, I'm seeing people who are in a position to see a private therapist and so forth. I have, however, worked in um, homeless clinics and I've worked in general population clinics. Um, and um, those people do quite well also. So um, I, 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 you know, as a single practitioner, I don't have, I can't give you a statistical number, but I can tell you that people, since I've had the chance to talk all around the country here um, and in Canada, uh, I uh, I hear from a lot of therapists who've either read my uh, books or papers or they've heard me talk and they, they tell me how helpful it is with their patients. So I think it does pretty well. 
Mm. Just, just lastly, um, how rewarding is it for you? What's it like when you actually take someone through that process and they remove that addiction from their life? First of all, what do you see in the person and then how is that rewarding for you? Well, people, uh, people are always, they always feel a million times better once they stop any addictive behavior. Certainly if it's a physical addiction, something that can make you physically ill like alcohol, they feel better. But uh, even something like food, I mean, we all know how terrible you can feel when you overeat. Mm. So everyone feels better. And then they tend, especially with food, uh, they tend to uh, uh, get better physically and that makes them feel better. So there are all these wonderful side effects of stopping the behavior, uh, uh, but they feel better about themselves too. People mm. feel better about the fact that they are now in control of their lives, uh, and uh, that makes a difference. Mm. And you know, it's wonderful to, from my standpoint, it's wonderful to see. Uh, mm. I should add, though, just you know, for the sake of completeness, there are people that I've seen who have continued their addictive behavior. And I still see them. I don't throw anybody out of treatment because they're still doing it. And that, because I think that would be insane. Uh, just because they have a symptom that they haven't gotten into control yet doesn't mean they should stop the therapy. And and there are some people, unfortunately quite a few, who even take that further. And they say, I won't treat you at all until you stop the, the symptom. Oh, really? <laughs> well, it, it seems it's kind of productive. It certainly is, and it's it's true more in, in a, something like alcoholism than than other things. But there are definitely people out there who will say, "I don't treat alcoholics. Go somewhere, see somewhere, do something, stop drinking, and then I'll see you." Mm. And I think that's that's insane. <laughs> that does sound a bit insane that one hey Lance um, just thank you so much for your time today we really really appreciate it um, I know a lot of my listeners will be had their ears perked up as they listen to today's interview and and uh, the names of the books are what's the first name of the first book the first book is called uh, The Heart of Addiction it's published by HarperCollins it, it's uh, they're both available in paperback now yep and the, and the one that came out just two years ago is called Breaking Addiction its full title is actually Breaking Addiction a seven step handbook to stopping to ending any addiction. Yeah, admittedly, I, I haven't read the first one, but I, I actually got the second one as an audio book, and, and I just couldn't, you know, I think I listened to it in a day, and then I listened to it again. It's, guys, I really recommend it. If you're listening to today's interview and you just kind of think, you know, if you just kind of hit a few chords with you, you know, there may be some stuff you need to work within yourself, and, and there may be further steps that you need to do, but a good start is to really get hold of Lance's books, and I'll have a link to those on my website, so you, you can go there and get them from there, but get onto them, and even if you just have people in your life who you know struggle with addiction you know the nice thing that Lance does very well is he puts it in language that makes sense and you know and you know even as you listen to Lance today he's just very good at making you know you kind of listen to this and you go yeah I get this and uh you know and, and there'll be work to be done but you know the first step is obviously a really good step would to get hard hold Lance's books is there any other ways that do you do Skype work or do you or is it only you just practice stuff well, uh, actually, I, I I would have done Skype therapy, but I it's in this country it's not legal to do it outside of my state where I'm licensed, so okay. it limits me. Okay. I actually don't know what the rules are for overseas, but but I know that that's the rule in the states. Well, you might get a few emails from a few listeners. <laughs> okay. Hey, Lance, thank you so much for your time, and you're doing very important work, and, and it's great to see you out there doing it. And uh, good luck with what you're doing, and uh, maybe we'll talk again sometime in the future. Okay. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Bye bye. Thanks, mate.
So there you go. There is my interview with Lance. It's obviously it's a pretty powerful interview, isn't there? And there's lots in there. And I'll put a link to his website uh, and his book in the show notes. You can go to bevanjamesisles.com to do that. I'm going to pretty much wrap it up now because I'm about to go on holiday. And But I will be back in a couple of weeks' time. And I've already done the next interview with a, a guy who's fascinating i think you guys are gonna get a lot out of the next interview so bring on 2019 it's an exciting time of the year and i really look forward to creating some really great content for you if you want to become a patron of the show just go to bevanjamesisles.com and there's a patron link there and also thank you to all the people who are patrons if you want to email me bevanjames at gmail.com and uh yeah i'll go i'll see you guys in a couple weeks time bring on 2019